This morning's text for the sermon is the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 5. Up until now, we basically dealt with the issue of the 1 Corinthian church, the Corinthian church, which was division in the church. Why did it take four chapters to deal with that? Because Paul saw the root cause of the division in the church is a primary concern for the church, the spiritual sickness, if you will. To simply put, it was worldliness. The love for the approval of the world, love for the worldly wisdom, love for the Corinthian way as opposed to way of Jesus and God's guidance. And it spills over to the second issue that they are having and Paul is about to address. It is this immorality in the church. And the reason why I kept it in immorality is that our application could be much more than just a sexual immorality, but all kinds of defiant immorality in the church. To give you context of the Corinthian culture, it is almost like California culture. Sexually, they're celebrating the liberated sexual life. And not to mention the Temple of, temple of Aphrodite, the, the goddess of fertility and love, sexual love, and which is their de-honorable worship. What was going on? Some historians tell us that there's thousands of temple prostitutes, men and women, who helps the people are coming because of fertility. Their form of worship was a sexual intercourse. So if you see that kind of culture as a mainstream culture, and on top of that, some of the commentators mentioned that their typical husband in Corinth had three types of women in his life. And one of them was a mistress, probably a beautiful young girl who meets the pleasure, sexual dreams of the, the men. Number two is a concubine who takes care of bodily needs, cooking and you know, laundry, probably all that. And number three, wife who provides offspring, sons and daughters of the men. So this was widely accepted. It's in that kind of culture, the church was having this problem. Sexual immorality was going on. But it was a little bit of extreme case even among that, in that culture, in our culture as well. So let's begin with unpacking the case that Paul is addressing in chapter 5. Let's start with who? It's a church member, not just regular Joe walking in the street, but church member who is in defiant sexual immorality. By defiant sexual immorality, it doesn't mean that he made a mistake, people confronted, he's sorry, he's repentant, he's seeking for help. No, he was a defiant, I will worship freely, and I will continue to live this kind of life. Specifically, his sin was ongoing sexual relation with his father's wife. It's interesting that there's a present tense, he has, meaning it was not a one-night stand, it was not uh, in the past, but he currently lives with his father's wife in sexual relation. Why father's wife? So probably the couple of clues that we could get from Apostle Paul's wording is one, probably this is not his mother, biological mother, but stepmother. The question is, where is the father? We don't know. Maybe father passed away. Maybe his father uh, moved to some other city 
Maybe the wife was much, much younger and who was attracted to this man because of the, the age wise she's probably close to, to him. We don't know. Why come there is no mention about the wife? Uh, the father's wife, this woman, uh, might not be a believer, might not be a church member. Otherwise, Paul would specifically mention both of them together. So even in that culture, Paul is saying even this kind of thing doesn't go on in pagan culture. Same thing with us. Incest was going on. And church's response, they did nothing. They tolerated. And the question that we could have is, are they tolerating? Are they worrisome or a little bit of a cowardice attitude because of the man was rich, man was powerful, man was in society, he's a high status. We don't know, but that's not the case. Their attitude, church's attitude, was proud and arrogant. And Paul has heard the report of this incident, and he's addressing it. And there's a sense of urgency in his voice. And then we're asking, in light of today's text, simply this question, how shall we deal with immorality within the church? Here's the first one. In dealing with immorality in the church, we are to humbly submit to God rather than man and mourn over sin in the church. Verse 1, he starts the chapter this way. It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has a, his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Why were they proud and arrogant? Remember, the title of our series through the studies in 1 Corinthians, is true spirituality, which means we need to constantly ask this question. What is true spirituality? What makes true spirituality? What are the counterfeit true spirituality, pseudo-true spirituality? And much of what Corinthian church is going through, our church is parallel to that. The Corinthian church was arrogant because their misguided spirituality Number one, they were so mesmerized and they grasped grace of Jesus Christ so clearly that no one can save himself or herself by keeping the law. So there is a freedom in Christ. All things are lawful. Remember later on, he talks about the gray area, eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols. So he will mention all things are lawful, but not beneficial. And they're actually taking the freedom of, in Christ for their pleasures and for their liberality and for their popular opinions. Much of our culture giving into what mainstream culture would approve, would like. We're up against the same type of resistance of Christian ethics or morality in general. How about this one? They might be thinking that they're more mature because grace over justice, we're going to embrace him and uh, uh, allow him wouldn't it be great 
that this sinner is amongst us, this is a lot easier to do it when you are in that kind of muggy, muffled culture. Where I've seen this in our days as well, but not as this extreme, but as something like this. Let's say in my previous ministry, a large church, and the people are signing up for the retreat, church retreat, and this young uh, boyfriend, girlfriend is signing up for the retreat and said, uh, can you put us in the same room? <laughs> you know, the couple's rate, we like the couple's rate. So I didn't know how to respond. So I said, uh, you, guys, you guys married? No, no, we're, we're steady. We're boyfriend, girlfriend. We've been dating for two years or something like that. And I had to say, it's for the married couple. And I didn't want to go into, you shouldn't have sex before marriage or anything like that. That's mandate from the scripture. But the cultural standard is what? The meaningful relationship. I love him. He loves me. Therefore, we're committed to each other. The sharing sexual love together is perfectly fine. And that's the mainstream ethics. What if our church is growing and all these people are coming in and becoming members of the church and we are not clear about our convictions in submitting to the scripture? We could go there. This is a slippery slope. This is uh, when you throw a stone, it might get one puddle, but the ripple effect continually goes on further and further. In our days, the main issue is the issue of homosexuality, isn't it? To say anything against homosexuality in the name of the Bible, what God says, even in the culture of Christian denominations now, it became a little controversial issue. Since when? Some denominations even go against the hermeneutical principles of looking into scripture and ordain and pastors who are practicing homosexual, who would marry them. And I think even about 20 years ago, we didn't sense this kind of hostility or tension because of the religious freedom. The Christians are supposed to be believing in all that. But we have pressures now. So many Christian churches have given into this tolerance. So much like Corinthian church. The issue that Paul is raising is you're arrogant because you put yourself in judgment seat and you are deciding what's right and wrong and what's okay and not. Will you submit to God's will, which is clearly revealed in Scripture? Will you follow it? If so, you ought to not think of yourself spiritual or mature in arrogance, but to mourn over this sin. Do you remember Jesus said in, in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This mourning is not because you lost your car. This mourning is not because your business is not going well. This mourning is, this mourning is not because someone you love is sick. Primarily, this mourning is mourning over sin and ramification of sin and our inability to overcome sin. Why? It starts with, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are spiritually bankrupt. 
for there is the kingdom of God. God's kingdom comes in when you actually surrender and say, I am helpless, hopeless before God. I cannot be righteous in, in the sight of God at all. And therefore, I mourn for my sin. Corinthians didn't do that. They were actually proud. Our church is special. More, our church is more elegant church than those primitive church churches around them. Another scripture, guidance. Paul, this time in Galatians, writing to Galatians, he writes of similar issues. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The first and foremost thing that we need to do in dealing with immorality in sin is that we ought to be humble, broken, desperate, leaning on hard on God. Not tolerance, not judgmental things that we are actually above anyone else. I have friends who, who fell, as, who, who had sexual sins as a pastor. I have friends who have been disillusioned because of the failures of their spiritual leaders. They have turned against church because of that. I have friends who are just continually practicing this cheap grace that we're all broken. That you are sitting in a puddle of sin that the only difference, yes, we are broken, but the only difference is because of Christ, there should be a transforming power of Christ. As Paul just talked about that in the previous chapter. Kingdom of God in the, and not in the talks, but in the power. The same thing is a form of godliness without the power of godliness. Yes, we're broken. But we need to remember the call of God. God has called us out of sin and damnation in order to make us holy and blameless before God as a bride of Christ. Second thing is in dealing with immorality in the church, we are to practice church discipline for the restoration of the person, brother or sister from sin. I'm going to unpack the word church discipline, which is loaded with different baggages too much. So hold on to that. Let's read the text first, uh, verse 3 to 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul mentions a lot of things, but we need to focus on this as a hinging point of his what he's expounding here. The first of twofold purpose of church discipline is not to punish the brother or sister in sin, but to restore the person spiritually. And this is the reason why we have gone uh, so wrong in one direction. Some of the 
fundamental Bible-banging church basically abused this the church discipline in a too extreme to shame, to punish publicly in such a way that person was demolished. And then many of the people who actually see that has turned against the church alongside of that, which is sad. Must not be done that way. And do you notice this? It's not because the personal emotions at all the people's emotion, the church leaders or elders or pastors' conviction about some personal things. In the name of Lord Jesus, which means on behalf of Jesus. We are the body of Christ for the honor of Christ. And then not only that, Paul mentions with the power of Lord Jesus. We are to do this leaning on the power of Jesus not our own way. So what is church discipline? It's not just a, oh, we find out someone's singing, we're bringing someone in the public right away. Matthew 18 spells out, Jesus gives us a fourfold process of church discipline this way. Matthew 18, verse 15 through verse 17 If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. A lot of times we skip that process and that's number one problem of uh, the church. Verse 16. But if he doesn't... uh, I'm sorry. Verse 15b... If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Everything's fine. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen... even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which means as a total pagan non-Christian. So fourfold process this way. Go alone, number one. Number two, take one or two people. And if they don't listen, take it to the church. And they don't listen, or he or she doesn't listen, Remove him or her from fellowship. So now, one more difficult thing. Apostle Paul mentions, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This delivering this person to Satan for the destruction of the flesh is very difficult to understand. There are uh, several interpretations on this. The mainly two things, as I mentioned, is uh, traditionally, and at a glance I used to read it this way also too, the destruction of the flesh as the destruction of the body. So somehow uh, in the hand of Satan, the person who physically die because of the sin. And the whole the spirit it will be saved. There are so, some problems with that interpretation. Number one, Apostle Paul, uh, throughout the Bible, as a clear guided theologian, he mentions uh, and throughout, all throughout New Testament, not only Paul, but other biblical writers also too, the salvation is holistic. Which means our body as well as spirit is important in salvation. And that's why the resurrection of the Christians at the end of when Jesus comes back, the, the resurrection of the church happens. Our body will, immortal body, and mortal body will be, become 
immortal, imperishable body, like Jesus' body after the resurrection. So God has the holistic salvation, not just our spirit, but the body for our entire being. And Paul mentions, in the second interpretation I'm more leaning toward to these days, and I, I believe this is it, um, Paul always mentioned the word flesh, sarks, as opposed to not the spirit and body, but the flesh versus the spirit's desire versus the flesh, fleshly desire, lust. In other words, Paul uses this word, the flesh, as Adamic nature of all human beings after the fallen sin because of original sin because of our fallen heart we have tendencies inevitable tendencies impossible uh, to change that's why Christ died for us so I think that what's happening in at least in the first century culture to remove him from the fellowship because of crystal clear distinction between the non-Christian world under the satanic domain, domain and under spiritual community of new life in Christ under the Spirit's control was drastically different. And their entire life depend on it. Not just worship and fellowship, but their fellowship, their communion with each other they're helping each other, their physical needs, all those kind of things, friendships were wrapped in one. To cut him off the fellowship meant that he's going to be not only alone, but he's going to face all kinds of difficult problems. In so doing, Paul is saying, that person will face up to his flesh and to sinful nature and the defiance that he has. And because of the hardship that brings on him, he may turn. And he, would, he could be restored spiritually back to the body. I believe this is better trans, uh, interpretation than physical death. Physical death it doesn't mean much of anything other than the, the dualistic understanding of the body is bad and spirit is good, which is another heretical ideas. Another reason, evidence for this, is if you read Second, Second Corinthians, the letter after this, Paul actually mentions this time, when that person is repentant, receive him back. Welcome him back. Do not stay distant. Open your heart to him. And I believe he's talking about the same person. This person is repentant and trying to come back, and they're a stand-up fish. So now, this is the difficult part. I lost sleep on this. Modern application, church's discipline is almost impossible. You know why? Back in the days when you are expelled from church, or the uh, more technical term is excommunication, you're excommunicated from the church, you have nowhere else to go. And other churches will not receive you unless you become repentant. Our problem of our day, because of lack of understanding and practice of biblical church membership, when church becomes even hints about any kind of corporate discipline on the person, we confront each personally, we brought two people, we constantly exhort you to return 
to God, turn away from your sinful life and your lifestyle, repent, be and be restored. Thank you, but no thank you. I, I love exactly the way I am. So we want to bring you into church discipline. Any kind of hint of that, guess what happens? 99%. Bye-bye. Just go to next door. If church becomes a little bit more insistent or very aggressive in style, a lawsuit can happen too. I mean that the member who was brought into the church discipline will sue the church. At least there's anger and hostility and not really receptive on that. There are cases, you know, hopefully, the people are receptive and be corrected and restored to that. So because of this, isn't it, no wonder there are two poles of extremes. One is, just like the Corinthian church, it's just complete tolerance, grace over justice. Ah, you know, how can I judge you? No, Christ judges Remember, in the name of Jesus, with the power of Jesus, we, we don't have our emotion, personal emotion, that. The only emotion is mourning for that person, mourning for the church. We had minor incidents in our church past six, seven years. We wouldn't even call it a church discipline. Because we did everything without the name of church's discipline. I, I believe this is it. This calls your obedience to into this. Probably in our culture, in our modern application, your care, aching, paking, taking pain with brother and sister to restore that person, to go to that person, to constantly pray for that person and to bring others and elders to confront that person in love and gently restore them is largely what church discipline ideally should look like. If nothing happens, church needs to make a stand. And usually by this time, people will leave. But Paul is saying you cannot judge what church culture ought to be from the horizontal point of view. We are to submit to God's will, which is clearly revealed in Scripture. Which takes to number three, in dealing with immorality in the church, we are to practice church discipline for the purity and edification of the church. This is two, number two of twofold purpose in church discipline. Verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. For the Jewish Christians, especially Jewish Christians, all, all those people who are familiar with Jewish practices back then in the first century, they got this right away. Do you remember the Passover? The, one of the most important holidays in Jewish culture, even nowadays, is Passover. Passover is the first day of unleavened bread festival 
the seven days long. What is Passover? If you remember uh, the Egyptian slavery and God showed up uh, through Moses and let my people go and as Pharaoh resisted, hardened his heart, the tenth and last plague was the death of all firstborns. The instruction for the, all the Hebrews, Israelites, was to kill the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. That's number one. The angel of the death will come on that day, will pass over that house. This is very symbolic and foreshadowing shadowing the sacrificial death of the real Passover lamb, which is Christ Jesus on the cross. His blood covering our, our, our forehead, figuratively speaking, God's wrath and judgment passes over. But in the Israelites, that was a vividly literal thing. And the second instruction was, you are to get rid of all the leavened bread. And not only the leavened bread, all the leavens in the house. For seven days, there should be no leavened bread. What did leaven represent? Obviously, sin. Get rid of all the leavened bread. Do not eat. For seven days, you continually eat unleavened bread only. Don't even have one in that. Unlike our times, it's, it's more than yeast. It's, it's the, uh, the old days of leavened bread meant it's a, it's, a, it's a small lump which is, could be mixed into the larger lump and becomes fermented and, and rises the bread that way. So they always had a small lump of fermented bread. So get, getting rid of it meant symbolically getting rid of all the sin for which Christ, the Passover lamb, shed his blood. So in this case, Paul is bringing up this issue. is not only for the spiritual restoration of the person, you are to get rid of all these ramification of sin. The small sin, if you allow and tolerate, will affect the entire church, which is so true. Isn't it? Brothers and sisters, you need to pray for me. Because I am broken men, just like you. And I am not exempt from any kind of, you know, failure, moral failure, any kind of temptations and lust. And our, our elders are holding me accountable, caring for me, and we are to care for together in a men's group together. Of course, all that. So let's imagine that something happens to me or to one of our elders and to one of our members, per se, to tolerate it because the pain and uncomfortableness, what happens is that ramification of sin, our tolerance, will send the, uh, this kind of cues to all the people within the church and outside the church that some things are okay. In Christian, uh, in 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 terms of our culture, the horizontal level, oh, that will sound very loving and graceful. And that's why a lot of churches doing that. But if we really love that church person, take me as an example. If you really love me, if you see any kind of deep sin in my life. You will restore me. You will take me off from public ministry and have me go through guided, comfortable, not comfortable, gentle, (laughs) 
gentle process of restoration. <laughs> I think that's my fleshly desire, right? <laughs> Guess what? I have seen some pastors who were completely neglected. Tolerance, and sometimes it's a detachment. You know, he's out the church, so there's no process of restoration, no counseling, no spiritual director sitting with him, no brothers caring, continually praying with him. They haven't been completely restored. The dream of kingdom of God is gone. Who's winning? The Satan. In this. Another thing that I must mention is, in the name of church discipline, church discipline, people are abusive. People are hostile and shame the member or pastor or the leader and to a point there is no more of restoration. If that person is really restored, he and she is welcome to join in. And not only as a member, but in the process of leadership too. Why not? Mercy triumphs over judgment in the sense that Christ forgives us completely. Without a black mark. That is a full restoration. Paul's heart is all about that. Once again, let me mention two things again. When we see immorality, the church discipline meant for the spiritual restoration, full restoration of that person. And for the purity of church, that continually we pursue holiness that God designs us to pursue as Christ. Number four, and finally, in dealing with immorality in the church, we are to pursue radical difference of the church from the world. Verse 9, Paul mentions um, the, the letter he wrote pr- previously, prior to this, which was lost. What well, we could presume what he wrote, he said something similar to do. Don't mingle with any of these people who are sexually immoral. And they were mistaken as a categorically, even with non-Christians. So he's clarifying that. And I'll call it the limit or boundary of church's discipline. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindler, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not, so, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, which means within the church, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside, inside the church whom you are to judge? God judge those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Verse 9 through 13, actually to verse 13, he quotes from Leviticus, from the, the Israelites journeying through the wilderness, God provide those commands. The, two things very clearly pointed out here. One is, you're mistaken. The previous letter I wrote was about regarding the brothers and sisters in the church who are continually defiant and disobedient and unrepentant in their sinful lifestyle. Stay away from them. But they took it as 
altogether. So imagine this. In Corinth, the sexually immoral culture, rampant culture like that, you can't even go out to the next neighbor and hang with him. What Jesus mentioned, I am not asking, the, asking you, Father, in his high priestly prayer, not to take them out of this world, but to keep them holy, keep them sanctified. Your word is holy. I send them, as you have sent me, into the world. I send them into the world. So we are to hang out with sexually immoral people. We are to people who are party-going, beer-drinking people. Your co-workers who drops F-bomb and S-bomb, we are to hang out with them in the name of Jesus, with the love of Jesus. And Paul is mentioning clearly the mandate I'm talking about within the body of Christ for the purity of the church and for the restoration of the brother or sister. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this very clearly for us. We hear so many of the movement these days, right? Exciting things. And since our church is open to all gifts, we're not a cessationist, which means supernatural gifts, spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit still exist. We believe that. So we're open to, in a very large sense, charismatic movement. But there is a way to test validity of true spirituality. What is happening is really valid. Because we will see people getting healed. We will see a bunch of people falling down and do weird things. People will do in the name of revival. All kinds of weird things are going on. And it's hard to discern. Then number one principle. Telltale sign. If this is a work of God. From God and of God. We're going to see holiness. Holiness. Not in the holier than thou kind of superficial religiosity, but people are fearing the Lord. People despise the old way of life. In the great awakening in Jonathan Edwards' times, what happens was the bars were being closing down because no one they didn't have enough customers anymore no one said don't go to bars but people revere God's word and begin to really see the way of life they came from and the desire for holiness do, do you hear what I'm saying even in our church, what good is it we have all these right informations or the right interpretation if there is no desire to follow God's will, to be pure before God, to please the Lord as the body of Christ? Our movement is also false. Richard Lovelace, in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And I quote, I end this with this quote. The apprehension of God's presence, he writes, is the ultimate core of genuine Christian experience. And the touchstone of its authenticity is the believer's vision of the character of God. Jonathan Edwards felt that every experience of God could be counterfeited except those who which involved in, in, on, 
insight into his holiness. It is significant that during the Great Awakening, a sense of the infinite excellence of the divine nature was common among those, who, among those undergoing conversion. In our own time, so many forms of Christianity have, been, have become man-centered that this experience is seldom generated by our preaching. Isn't it so true? So people of God, the members of the body of Christ, my dearest Crossway Church family, let's look to God and see how holy He is the beauty of His holiness, that someday we will participate in His glory as His heirs with Christ. And today, if there is any little sin in your life, the leavened bread in your house, it could be soft porn, it could be gossiping, it could be doing some things as subtle and you could rationalize it. Let us get rid of all those things. Not because we want to be legalistic. Not because we want to be perfectionistic. But because we desire holiness. And our desire for His holiness is so attractive, so deep in our longing. That we will become radically different as a salt and light of this world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your Spirit's guidance through this passage. I would confess that it is utterly difficult for us to really boldly and yet gently, with balance and discernment, to practice what we are learning today. So God, tell us who we are, that we are unleavened because of Christ. That you see us as if we never seen, sinned. That you see as a holy people because the blood of this Passover lamb upon us. Would you open our eyes that we may see a little bit of your beauty of your holiness beyond legalism, beyond superficial religiosity. We long for you and touch our hearts and our church and make us holy. We do pray that our church will grow in this and true spirituality. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.